to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg. And on today's episode, I'm excited that we have constitutional lawyer Erin Howley on the program. She's going to talk about a variety of things, starting, first of all, with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which was passed in 2017. She's going to let us know what the benefits were and also some of the misperceptions out there. And she's also going to talk about where things are with the legal battle over the Affordable Care Act and rounding it out with her perspective on how Justice Kavanaugh is doing so far. And also since she was a clerk for the Supreme Court Justice John Roberts, she's going to talk a little bit about just how the justices get along. So I'm really excited to hear her thoughts on that. A little bit about Erin. She is also the Associate Professor of Law at the University of Missouri. She teaches constitutional litigation, federal income tax, tax policy, and agricultural law. As I mentioned, she clerked for the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and she's a legal fellow at the Independent Women's Forum. But probably most interesting is that her husband just became Missouri's newest U.S. Senator. So we're excited to talk about um, her husband, Josh Halley, as well. So, Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Beverly. I'm glad to be here. And the first question I have for you in your bio, um, we found out, we just learned that you are also married to a new senator, Senator Josh Halley, and that you have moved from Missouri to Washington, D.C. So I've been in D.C. now for, I'm going to age myself, about 19 years. It took a, took a couple years to get used to D.C., <laughs> but how has the transition been for you so far? You know, it's been great. Um, I think we were aided in part by the fact that Josh and I had both lived and worked uh, in D.C., uh, prior to this most recent move. So that was helpful. We still have many friends um, from church and a good community that we were able to move back uh, to. But as many of your listeners know, it is completely different moving <laughs> and living in D.C. with children. So we're actually out a little bit uh, in Vienna, Virginia. Uh, I insisted on having a yard uh, for our boys and those sorts of things. So it's it's been a good move. And the boys, um, as so many people say, kids are very Uh, resilient, and the transition has just gone really beautifully for them, for which I'm really grateful. Out of curiosity, any food that you're missing in Missouri? How has the food scene been in D.C. so far? The food scene in D.C. is great, although uh, barbecue. um, That's what I figured. Kansas City barbecue standards, yes. Well, I was looking forward to this interview with you for a variety of reasons. Um, One was that I really wanted to get your take on tax policy, especially since um, tax day was not too long ago. April 15th wasn't that long ago. And really get your take on how people as a whole have felt um, since then. So especially with your experience in federal income tax issues and tax policy. um, First of all, how do you think the... uh, in 2017, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was passed. How do you think that benefited the average person getting into tax season? Oh, my goodness. Well, we saw the benefits um, concretely in two major ways um, pretty immediately. Um, And one of those was in tax refunds. So the the season was not long far off uh, to file the 2017 tax returns. um, And many uh, individuals received much larger tax refunds uh, than they had anticipated uh, because of the reduction in rates. I think the average was something around 2200 if I have that correct. And so that was uh, that tax break uh, was money directly uh, into consumers' pockets. They could use to pay down debt. Uh, they could use to invest. They could use to save. They could use for their school, uh, their children's schooling uh, or uh, school supplies, those sorts of things. So a very concrete difference uh, in the lives of ordinary people. And as, as many of us have heard, you know, some of the Democrats refer to this kind of money as scraps or, or 
um, not much uh, in the way of refunds. But to the, the average uh, American family, I think that difference uh, was felt immediately uh, and was very helpful. And the second way in which the tax uh, cuts took effect um, and helped uh, people in concrete ways uh, was many companies who had received uh, tax, uh, a lower rate on their own company taxes uh, returned some of that uh, uh, in an investment to their employees. Uh, many companies issued bonuses um, at the end of the year, um, quite large in some cases. And again, these bonuses went to individual workers uh, to support their own families um, and directly benefited those families as well as the economy. I was reading your one of your pieces that you put on the IWF blog called the Two, Two Truths and a Lie Tax Day. And I thought it was a great article because you played off the game where you put out three statements and you had to guess which one was false. And I think there's so much confusion about people thinking that a tax refund means that the government is giving them money. It's not government giving them money. It's their own. They basically gave a free loan to the government. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see that that's a Absolutely. big misperception? And how did tax refunds um, play out, especially since many of the tax cuts, the money was already um, put back into people's pay, pay stubs each year? Yeah each pay cycle. Do you think people really saw the difference on tax day? So, so they did, although they may not have known it. So the interesting That's what I was wondering. Example, <laughs> yes. Between 2017 and 2018 was the timing of the law. So uh, by the time the tax cuts uh, job hit, uh, act had passed, uh, people had already contributed uh, their taxes through withholdings. So, so the federal government takes a big chunk of money um, out of everyone's paycheck a check every month, not only for Social Security and FICA and those sorts of things, but also withholding um, in anticipation of the income tax. So that's taken out of every paycheck um, all year long, and those rates are calculated based on the expected tax rate. So that's why we saw such large refunds, uh, larger than people uh, expected uh, in 20 for the 2017 year. Now we fast forward, um, and in 2018 year, the IRS had recalculated those tables, so it was taking less money um, out of everyone's paycheck every month. And as you mentioned, this is a tremendous benefit uh, to cheap taxpayers. They have more money uh, at, every, at the end of every month that they can use to pay their bills, uh, to save at college, all sorts of those things, rather than giving that money to the government and then hoping they'll get it back um, when they file their taxes later. So. Uh, all things being equal, you would much prefer a smaller tax return um, because that means you've loan a uh, tax refund rather because that means you've loaned the government less money uh, during the year and you've instead had that money uh, to use for your own family's expenses. Now, a, a common narrative we hear not just in some news outlets, but also from some of the Democrat nominees who are trying to run um, for the nomination of the Democrat Party to then hopefully defeat Donald Trump. That's what all the Democrats are trying for. Um, one of the things that we hear over and over again was that the tax cuts and jawbacks of 2017 was just a pay cut for the wealthy. So obviously what you're saying, what you're telling us, and I think what people saw just in their, their paychecks every month, that's not the case. But why is this a narrative that they can continue to perpetuate? Why does it seem to have to, to hold truth and hold so much weight? I think it really is uh, something that the Democrats and the, the media sort of portray that it was just for the wealthy. But if you talk to uh, everyday Americans, they saw more in each paycheck uh, every month. And that doesn't mean um, that uh, maybe there's not more to do uh, with tax policy, but there's no way that you can look at the tax cuts and jobs act and say it didn't benefit um, everyday working Americans. Um, they each uh, received more in their paycheck every month than they would have 
uh, without the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And maybe the wealthy may have benefited more in terms of, of actual dollars, but that's because of the amount um, that the wealthy are paying uh, initially um, in those taxes. So, so it was a, a big benefit um, to uh, everyday uh, working Americans uh, as well. And something, and Elizabeth Warren comes to mind. She she's someone who is pushing a wealth tax to tax the the very wealthy, as she would put it, charge them, I guess, two percent more in tax. When you hear about these taxes that are going to impact the wealthy, um, how does that impact everyday people? I think on the surface it sounds to many people like, well, that seems like a good idea. Two percent isn't that much, even though they're already paying taxes <laughs> in other areas. What ends up happening sometimes when the wealthiest in our country do get taxed too much? How does that then flow over into American workers? Well, I think another good example we can look at is the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017 and what happened to the employees of companies uh, that received some of the, the lower taxes. And those companies were able to invest in infrastructure. They were able to invest in capital assets. And critically, they were able to invest in their actual employees by giving them unexpected bonuses uh, at the end of the year. So we see um, from, from just that, that one example and paradigm that when a company um, is doing well, then it can um, also uh, give more uh, of a salary, increases in bonuses and the like uh, to its employees. So a number of the, quote, wealthy, depending on what, how the plan is structured, uh, might be small businesses. Uh, and we want to be careful about taxing small businesses too much because the economic literature shows uh, that much um, of that tax burden will fall actually on the employees. So we want to be really careful when we talk about uh, taxing the wealthy, especially if we're talking about businesses. And I want to move to another area that people really care about. Obviously, it's always the economy. Taxes factor into that. But we'd love to move on to another area that you have worked on legally, and that is the issue of Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, and wanted to get your take on where things were legally on that. I know that um, I believe it was the end of last year you had Texas. Um, there was a lawsuit there. They were challenging the constitutionality of uh, the ACA, and it was a big win for those who don't think that Obamacare is constitutional. Can, but can you break down to us what that case was and where we are today on the legal aspect of it? Absolutely. Well, that's a very timely question because the case is now up before the Fifth Circuit, uh, who will hear uh, oral argument uh, on the case sometime in early July. And this specific challenge to the Affordable Care Act um, has to do with, uh, as some of the others did, uh, the individual mandate. And in particular, in the first Obamacare case, the Supreme Court held that the individual mandate was constitutional under the taxing power. I have to do just a short segue here and, and mention uh, the basis that the government really argued could support the individual mandate. And what the government said in that case was that uh, because uh, health care is sort of a good that everyone uses, that they should force you to buy insurance under the Commerce Clause. And this was an extremely broad reading of the Commerce Clause. Typically, when you think of the Commerce Clause, you think of Congress regulating something that's already in the stream of commerce. So they can regulate prescription drugs because they're sold over state lines and because there's a market for prescription drugs. But in this case, they were saying, we can make you buy a product. We can make you enter the stream of commerce um, because it's sort of a product that everyone will at some point use. And Justice Scalia, the late Justice Scalia, famously pointed out that, that using the government's own argument, in that case, the Obama administration's argument, that the government could force you to, eat, to uh, buy broccoli. 
um, which just makes no sense in, uh, out of a limited uh, powers of government. Um, so it's an outrageous sort of argument in that case. And five justices found, um, or six justices rather, found that, that the Commerce Clause would not support that sort of broad reading. However, um, they found uh, uh, five justices, a ma- narrow majority, found that it could be supported by the taxing power because the individual mandate uh, had a penalty attached to it. Well, fast forward, um, and a couple years ago, or this past year, Congress zeroed out the tax penalty. So now the the individual mandate exists and says you shall buy insurance, uh, but there's no tax penalty attached. So a number of states led by Texas have filed suit against the lawsuit uh, saying uh, that there's no tax. Uh, Now there's there's no payment if you don't buy insurance required, uh, so the the taxing uh, power no longer applies. So it'll be interesting to see how, how the court resolves uh, that question. Um, also interesting to see uh, if, if the court finds that, that the mandate um, is, uh, is not constitutional under the taxing power because Congress has zeroed it out, uh, what portions of the statute, if some of it they can still keep, is in legal terms severable from the rest of the statute um, or not. And I think the big picture to keep in mind um, about this case um, is that any court decision from the Fifth Circuit to the district court to the Supreme Court shouldn't turn on the merits if, if the ACA is good or bad policy. None of the ACA decisions that have taken place should, should turn on whether, whether the law is good or bad policy. Rather, uh, the courts have a, have a duty to interpret the laws written and then to apply the Constitution if they does it or does not fit with the Constitution. So, so I think we get that misperception, especially from Democrats who you know, this law is good policy or Republicans, this law is bad policy. But the question for the court is a much different one. Is this law constitutional? So, so I, I hope that they take on that question. Right. And so let's talk about what are potential outcomes. So obviously you can, a decision can go one of two ways. Um, what what could the potential fallout be? What could it mean for Obamacare um, if it moves in a direction where they say, yes, this tax is unconstitutional, the mandate is unconstitutional, you can't do that. What does that mean then for the law? That's a good question, and it will depend on sort of sort of the remedy. And the the court has two two basic alternatives. Um, if they find that the mandate is unconstitutional, then they could just strike that particular provision. Um, or uh, the district court in Texas uh, found that the uh, mandate was sort of tied up with the inseverable uh, from the rest of the law that it helps support the rest of the law. Uh, and the test is for whether Congress would have would have passed the rest of the ACA without the individual mandate. And the district court said, no, it wouldn't have. Uh, so it struck down uh, the entire Affordable Care Act. Um, so that, that's one possible outcome. Um, I think that, that outcome is probably less likely. Um, the court would probably sever um, if it did find uh, the individual mandate uh, unconstitutional. But it could be um, anything from upholding the individual mandate, um, maybe on the grounds that the Congress that you know, zeroed out the individual mandate um, you know, clearly intended to take the tax away, um, or it could find um, that the individual mandate um, is unconstitutional since there's no longer a tax attached and just strike the individual mandate, or it could go much more broadly uh, and say because the individual mandate is integral uh, to the entire statute, that the entire statute um, is unconstitutional and has to, has to uh, and, be struck and down. So there's, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, so there's a wide variety of outcomes. <laughs> so question for you. So I know that you clerk for the Chief Justice, um, Justice John Roberts. Um, I'm curious, 
these types of decisions, obviously, they're making um, legal decisions that can have dramatic impact on not just the country, but individual people. When they look at cases that are so big, is it hard for them sometimes to not necessarily um, know what their perspective is on it, but when they know that there are so many implications, especially if if this was a law that um, Congress put put into play and they would rather Congress deal with it, are they very careful about how they word their ruling? Um, because it does seem that more and more people think that the Supreme Court is part of judicial activism, that so much is being done in the Supreme Court. So does that weigh on their mind? You know, I, I think it does. And I think a prime example of that is, is the first Affordable Care Act case. And in that case, you had the constitutional challenge just to the power of Congress to require individuals to buy insurance that we talked about. Um, and in that case, what the court, what the majority did, was they actually used sort of the constitutional avoidance canon and said if there's any possible way to save the statute, um, any sort of way that we can read it, because Congress has said this is not a tax because it's obviously not popular for Congress to add additional taxes. So in passing the ACA, Congress has said not a tax. Um, but then the court looks at it and says, you know, this is a big statute. It's sort of the signature um, accomplishment of the Obama administration. This is health policy. We're not health policy experts, we're supposed to just be interpreting the law. So I think you see in that case um, an inclination or a tendency um, to leave it to the lower branches and to to read a statute um, in a way that was not the most natural in order to to sort of push it back um, to Congress rather than have the courts deal with it. Um, now, in, in my view, that, that was, was wrongheaded, um, but I think you definitely see uh, an inclination for the court to um, be careful in these sorts of cases. And of course, we're coming into a busy Supreme Court season, so you have a lot of decisions that are going to be made in just a week or two. Um, Some decisions coming down. This is the first big big time that we're going to be seeing Judge Kavanaugh and how I know he's ruled on certain cases so far, but we're going to see with so many cases being decided how he's going to go. How do you feel that Judge Kavanaugh has done so far? And what really would you say his type of of legal mind, how he sees cases, what what insight can you give on Judge Kavanaugh? You know, I think Judge Kavanaugh has already made a fabulous uh, Justice Kavanaugh and uh, for uh, reasons that are already apparent, um, he's had a few decisions come out, and he's a really careful jurist. So he deals with the facts um, of a particular case. He applies the law carefully. He's what is called an originalist, so he looks at the original meaning of the Constitution. He's a textualist, which means that the words uh, that Congress wrote matter to him. All of these things are really important um, in our judges because they, they're democracy-reinforcing. Uh, because they allow our elected leaders uh, to govern through statutes rather than, than a judge who's, who's on the bench uh, and unelected. So I think we see all of these things already in his opinion. Um, I also think it's really um, kind of remarkable um, that he actually has already set a record uh, at the Supreme Court, um, and not for an opinion yet, but rather for his uh, law clerks. So he is the first justice ever to hire four female law clerks, um, which is kind of incredible when you think about it. Um, and for the first time this year, there are more female law clerks uh, than male law clerks at the Supreme Court. Um, and there, there are typically more female law students uh, than male law students. So it's, it's kind of um, nice to see it at the court for this year. I had no idea. That's a really interesting point. So, Aaron, since you, you did clerk for Justice Roberts, I'm curious with you just 
what you perceived in the relationships of the justices. I was always fascinated by the fact that the late Justice Scalia had a really strong friendship with Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And of course, they saw things so differently, um, but yet they were able to be friends. So I'm just wondering what the demeanor is like among the justices. Do they spend a lot of time together? Um, do they typically get along? What was what did you see from your perspective? Absolutely. Well, I think that friendship between the Justices Scalia and Ginsburg is really emblematic of a friendship that, that is common um, at the court. I think one of the best pictures I've ever seen is of Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg riding an elephant together. Uh, <laughs> so they were very much friends outside the court. Um, and this carries over to other justices as well. And um, it can be sort of an isolating existence, I think, for the justices. They're um, spending a lot of time um, by themselves, reading, writing cases, those sorts of things. So they do form uh, close friendships among one another, and not always or even often along ideological lines. Uh, Justice Kagan uh, gets along well with Chief Justice Roberts, uh, as well with uh, many other justices. So it is something that um, crosses over ideological lines. Um, and the justices know that they will be working together for a very long time. Um, so I think that also contributes to the formation of friendships uh, across sort of those ideological lines. And this, in wrapping up, I'm curious from you, what are the cases that the Supreme Court's going to be deciding on that you are most excited about um, hearing, hearing what their perspective is on it and their ruling is on it? What should we be looking out for as the, some of the most important cases? So I am an administrative law junkie, um, which is not something that's usually super interesting uh, to uh, some people. But uh, this uh, term, uh, the Supreme Court has a chance to consider what's known as the Hour Doctrine. And in that case, um, it, the doctrine directs courts to defer to an agency's interpretation of its own regulation. So you've got this sort of double deference going on. Congress passes, as often as the case, a really broad statute, and an agency passes maybe a really broad regulation. And the Chevron Doctrine says that you get deference, that the agency gets deference on that regulation. And the courts have to go with their interpretation as long as it's sort of reasonable or plausible. Well, Hour goes a step further and says that even on an interpretation of the regulation, courts have to defer and to go with any plausible interpretation. You end up with this broad statute and then you have this application that may have very, very little to do uh, with the statute. Uh, and yet the courts, these Article Three courts, still have to defer. So I think that case uh, will be potentially very exciting uh, to see what the court does. There's also a monument case uh, up at the court. Um, there's the sort of census question and how um, the Department of Commerce, um, uh, their authority over the census. So there's many important cases that will still be coming down. And I think a couple of days ago, Justice Ginsburg sort of indicated that those cases may uh, show some divisions among the courts. So it will certainly be interesting uh, to watch the opinions and outcomes there. So I know your husband is um, has a legal background as well. Is this like the Super Bowl for you guys to have this time of year when the decisions are coming out? It is. It is, absolutely. In fact, my sister was visiting a couple of years ago, and we were talking about some case, and she leans over and says, is this what you guys actually talk about? So, but it is. So we, we both really love this. 
Well, we thank you so much for your time. I know your two boys who are wonderful are are with you today. So we appreciate you spending this time. I know you're also very busy with your job and you have so much going on. So thank you for all you do. And thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. It really does help. And we'd love it if you would share this episode with your friends so they can know where they can find more She Thinks episodes. So from all of us here at the Independent Women's Forum, thanks for listening. Thank you.